Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us on the Weekly Standard is Bill Crystal. And Bill, we're going to get to the uh, passing of Nelson Mandela in just a second. But the hot story where I do my radio show up here in Boston is Uncle Omar, shockingly, being allowed to stay in the United States after repeatedly ordering deportation orders and driving drunk over a police officer. I'm sure that happens to everybody. But also what we found out about how little the White House and the president apparently talk. Yeah, that's the striking thing to me about the story. I don't know anything about the merits of his claims to stay in the U.S. And uh, maybe maybe some immigration officer had a kinder attitude towards Uncle Omar than your <laughs> random um, uh, immigrant or illegal, I guess, immigrant or someone whose visa had expired. But, um, yeah, I mean, they seem not to have asked the president whether he had spent a week or two with Uncle Omar back 20 years ago. They, I guess is it, they read his book, I think, and, and just decided he, he didn't mention it in the book, so it didn't happen. And, and here's what's interesting. For, you know, be, uh, uh, the White House is now having to go back and backtrack, and you're thinking to yourself, why? This case has been going on for several years now. Uncle Omar and Aunt Zaituni, both you know, kind of figures in the 2012 election and, and before that. Nobody ever just went to the president and said, did you know this guy? And instead, they're out making statements. The president has never met his Uncle Omar. And now we know because someone finally asked the president that wasn't true. What kind of White House doesn't ask, just ask the guy the question. Instead, they're going back and they're reading his notes about his life. I was, I was talking to some Democrat uh, this week in you know, a green room before a TV show. Uh, I was off the record, so I, sh- I shouldn't say too much. But I, I said, what's going on in the White House, really? You, you, this guy served in the, in the Clinton administration, uh, and he's in touch with the Obama people and knows most of them, all of them probably quite well. And he said he was struck by how uh, how intimidated they are by the president, how um, how tiny the circle is that will talk to him at all uh, sort of seriously or, or you know, feel that they can raise things like that with him. Uh, maybe it's, uh, obviously it's Mrs. Obama, maybe Valerie Jarrett and one or two others, but that they really... Um, it is a staff relationship with him and not a staff that challenges him. And I do think they probably thought, oh, it'll be embarrassing to raise this. He'll get annoyed at us. We'll just go look at the book and then put out a statement. He himself seems not to have bothered to correct it. He doesn't seem very diligent about monitoring what his staff are saying and <laughs> saying, point. boy, that's not quite right. Um, but I think it does show a kind of dysfunctional White House. I mean, I, I tend to be, uh, among conservatives, there's a split. Either Obama knows everything and he's just, they're, they're, they're lying when they right. say Obama didn't know A, B, or C. Or, gee, it really is kind of a weird White House where they don't give him bad news, they don't ask him awkward questions. I think it's actually more the latter, which doesn't, of course, excuse him at all. He's responsible for it, and he presumably knows what's being said in his name. But I think the degree to which he keeps things very close to the vest, even in terms of you know discussions within the White House, the degree to which they don't feel they can bring him bad news. They, every successful president has had chiefs of staff who, who are willing to go in and say, or someone else at the senior level, including cabinet secretaries, who are willing to go in and say, Mr. President, this isn't working. Mr. President, we've got to answer this question, even though it's unpleasant. Uh, I just get the sense that does not happen in the Obama White House. And that's the reason why on a radio show our nickname for the president is Third Base. And every Abbott and Costello fan can tell you who's on third base. I don't know. And that's uh, <laughs> so that's what we call him. Speaking of uh, I don't know, it's uh, interesting polling numbers out this week about how little young people know about current events. The Institute of Politics does uh, does a survey of the millennials, 29 to 18 year olds uh, every year. But one area where they did have a heightened amount of information was on the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. And they don't apparently like what they know. They don't like it. A lot of them are not going to sign up for it, which I think may be wise in many cases. They're running a risk. Obviously, people would 
in general, should have some health insurance, but I mean, the cost is so ridiculous for healthy young people, and they can pay the fine and still get treated, obviously, if something terrible happens. I'm intrigued by the notion, incidentally, that there may actually be ways to purchase insurance through a couple of cooperatives um, that are not-for-profit outside of the Obamacare system, which would be the best of all uh, worlds, I should think. But anyway, that's something I'm going to look at more, because I think if we could encourage young people to do that, then one wouldn't be in the position of saying don't have insurance, but you'd be saying there are better ways to take care of, you know, catastrophic right. eventualities than, than the, going into Obamacare. They don't, want to go, they don't like Obamacare. Their approval of President Obama has declined precipitously in the last year. Uh, a plurality now will say that if they had recall of presidents, they would recall him. A majority regret uh, that he's president. They wouldn't vote for him again. Obviously, he got 60% of the vote of 18 to 29-year-olds just a year ago. It's really one of the fastest drops I've seen. Young people are volatile. And I think from a political point of view, it's very important. I mean, I wrote an editorial, which, of course, is somewhat light-hearted about the fickle, uh, um, you know, uh, attractions or fickle <laughs> allegiances of the young and, and how they have a crush on someone and then it's off to the next. But I think it really gives Republicans an opportunity with that group. But if you think about Obama's electoral victories, there are all these constituencies he had that he won overwhelmingly that took him over the top. Um, and one of them was young people. And if, if the Democrats lose that in 2014 and then in 2016, then suddenly all this talk about demographic destiny, Republicans are doomed, conservatism is doomed, is ridiculous. The other point I'd make is I think it's not just enough, though, to catch these young people on the rebound, so to speak. Uh, it's really important. It's a moment. It's a, I hate to use this term. It's, it's, so, it's a bad term. It's used by all these ridiculous <laughs> liberals and academics. But it is a teaching moment. And right. that they had their infatuation. They thought that this big government liberalism was the way to go. They've seen it up close with Obamacare. And I think it's a really moment for conservatives and Republicans to go out there and make the substantive case to young people for conservative policies. And that's what I was going to ask you is if you were talking to Republicans looking at 2014 and reaching 30 uh, and younger voters, what would be some of the topics you'd bring up? Yeah, I think the, actually I don't think, you know, fighting Obama's charm with Republican charm is that effective. I mean, right. there are charming Republicans. That's great, and, uh, but it's probably not Republicans strong suit, or dare I say, even conservatives strong suit, though I know that's shocking to you, Mike. <laughs> Those conservatives aren't always quite as charming. What? and Not as hip happening and now as our friends on the left? Yeah, exactly. But but I do think we have the issues on us. So young people are getting are graduating, leaving college or high school for that matter, coming into an economy with bad job prospects, unfortunately, with data showing that uh, economic opportunity and upward mobility are more limited than they have been in the past. Many of them with big student debt burdens, and Obama wants to do nothing about that. He has no reform agenda for higher education. I think that would be a big thing I would urge on Republicans at both the state level and the federal level. Using the Internet, really go after the higher education blob, as right. my former boss, Bill Bennett, calls it. Um, let's let people take courses online. Let's really bust up that bloated uh, system and, and get people cheap, affordable educations, especially for the more vocational educations where they don't need to be paying all that money for a four-year you know, residential right. college experience. Um, so I'd go big on economic opportunity, big on student loans and, and student debt. Debt in general, they're going to have to pay back that $16, 17000000000000 trillion. Right. Um, and then obviously Obamacare. And I think you know a really sober discussion with young people about um, the kind of country they want to live in, the kind of opportunities they want to have. This is the moment to have that. And I think one of the secret weapons, or not-so-secret weapons for Republicans, is Rand Paul. And I don't think you have to be a Rand Paul fan to see that he opens the door to allow younger voters, particularly those with a libertarian streak, to enter the 
you know, center right conversation as opposed to just being sucked right in to the cool Obama kid conversation. And I find, Bill, that people start off as libertarian and then they kind of grow out of it or they stop smoking pot, one of the two. And I hope that the Republican Party is a big tent enough to see that you can have the Rand Paul and the strong internationalist uh, 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 blocks simultaneously making their cases without chasing other people out. You know, I think that's right. And I think I, I would put it this way. I think the the arguments that appeal to young people aren't exactly going to be, going to be what I, you know, think. But that's fine. A, a political party or a movement is a coalition. And I think both the libertarian strand and the populist strand, I think, are both will be attractive to young people, taking on the big, established, right. pompous, self-important institutions, whether it's, uh, you know, the institutions of higher education or the big banks or, or sort of political correctness in general, uh, the media. I just think young people you know, are irreverent. Right. And so I think a libertarian populist um, tinge on the conservative message uh, wouldn't hurt at all. Uh, and talking about somebody who changed over the course of his life, when Nelson Mandela was a young man, he had a picture of Karl Marx and uh, uh, Lenin over his desk, uh, confirmed Marxist. And then when the time came for him to govern, he took a very different path. And that's one of the reasons why he's one of the great heroes of the 20th century. Yeah, no, it's an interesting development and a hopeful one, obviously, as a, as a model. But uh, for me, I mean, I'm no expert on, on Mandela, and um, but for me, what what's most admirable is just the personal qualities, and I think it's perfectly legitimate to talk, <clears throat> obviously, about his ideas and how he, what he said in opposition and in prison, obviously, and then what he said and uh, what he did in, in power. But for me, just the personal courage, the personal determination, the dignity uh, under uh, assault, under oppression, under imprisonment, and uh, is is the lesson of, of Mandela's life. So I think it's perfectly legitimate, as I say, to talk a lot about uh, his ideas and, and, and his uh, what he did as a as a political leader, but uh, for me, Mandela is one of those characters, and there are others in the 20th century where you just look at the human being and you say that is an admirable person. Bill Crystal, thanks so much for joining us for this Weekly Standard podcast. Please be sure to check WeeklyStandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.